Welcome to the Breaks and Joins podcast. I'm Sue Mayo, and I'm working on a project about repair, repair of our stuff, ourselves and our communities. And in each episode, we meet somebody who's really deeply involved somehow in repair of all kinds. Really hope you enjoy the podcast. Make sure you like and subscribe and share it with your friends. My name is Chuck Blue Lowry, and I am a filmmaker working on the project. I will be editing all of the podcasts. The podcasts have been recorded in line with social distancing measures. So if you do hear the occasional background noise, like a dog barking or a dodgy internet connection, it's all just part of the recording from home setup. Regardless of that, we have some fantastic conversations in store for you, and we really hope you enjoy the podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm really pleased today that we're going to be talking to Jo Cook. Uh, She's worked as a social worker and before that as a nursery nurse. And she lives in the West Yorkshire area with her husband and son. What she's here to talk about is that she founded last October something called Meet and Mend. And we've got to know each other actually over Instagram. But I just wanted to ask you before we start that, Jo, are you somebody who's sewed for, for a long time because meat and mend is about sewing is that something you've always done not really um I think I probably got more into sewing maybe just before sort of the pandemic the covid so I used to do like visible mending uh, and more sort of hand sewing and things but before that it was more knitting crocheting um when I was at school, I think that was probably the last time I did sewing and I didn't really enjoy it because I wasn't very good at it. But the mending I really like because you can kind of put your own stamp on it. So the meet and mend came from sort of the repairing and things that I like to do. So when you say visible mending, were you doing your own clothes and your family's clothes? Was it that? Yes, yeah, so like this sort of doing like darning of socks and jeans. But I like the visible mending because I'm not very good at invisible mending. because it's quite difficult to make it hidden whereas I quite like the visible mending because it's about creativity and I think when you're doing it it's making it's like your own stamp and it's also making a bit of a statement as well saying you know that I'm repairing this and and making it last long because I like the clothing uh, rather than just throwing it away. Yeah no I think that's right I like that that sense that you're actually telling people that it's worth saving and you, you want to keep it going a bit longer I think that invisible mending, it is an extraordinary skill, but there's something about it which is hiding the fact that there's been any damage, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think that's why I like the visible mending, because I think since I've got into it, it's evolved a lot more and it's becoming more popular. But I think the good thing is, I think in the past, it was seen as if you had something visible, it was a little bit of that shame attached to it. Whereas I think now it's that people are doing it as a bit more of a statement that actually it's okay to repair clothes and, and, you know, make them last long. So I think it's that statement as well of a little bit of like a, a bit of a protest, I suppose, isn't it? Yes, I think it is a protest. Yeah. But I'm also wondering whether we're just in time to pass the skills on because I feel as if so many generations haven't had that maybe haven't had sewing at school or haven't been 
shown how to do things. And it feels as if it's quite urgently needed that those really basic skills don't seem like a specialism or something extraordinary. We've talked to people on the podcast who've said, if you didn't sew a button on in my house, you went to school without a button. You you just had to learn, boys yeah. and girls. Yeah. But I think that there are a lot of people who don't know, don't have the confidence to do that kind of thing. I think sometimes it is easy to just buy something now because the clothes are so cheap, aren't they? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And I think for me, one of the things that I do want to do is, is work with schools, um, you know, and have maybe some cross-generation work where you know, people have the stories to tell that why they did repairs in the past, because I think that would help maybe young people, hopefully. Yes. Yes. I think that's really interesting. And I think you sometimes you don't know what is precious to somebody else mm. if they don't tell you. So you don't really know why somebody really treasures a blanket or a, a yeah. coat or a whatever it is. And to be able to hear them talk to you about why it's precious makes yeah. all the difference, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as well, you know, the idea I think I have is about sitting around the table, a small group of like adults and young people is, I think, you know, hopefully over a period of time, those relationships will develop. And then they're hearing stories about how things were repaired in the past and hopefully the young people will, that would resonate for them and then they will use those tools for the future. Joe, could you tell us a little bit about how you came to set up Meet and Mend? Yeah, it was possibly, I think it was March time last year, I started conversations with the library because um, there was lots of knit and natter groups and just general sewing groups, but there was nothing really for uh, repairing clothes. I had conversations, but I also wanted to engage with the community first so rather than me just going ahead and setting the group up, I had a few information sessions that I held at different libraries just so that I could engage with the community to find out what they wanted or what they felt was a need. But I got a good response from the community and a lot of people felt that, yes, there was a need for this. And some people had those skills already um, and said that they would be interested in going. So for me, doing that initial research I suppose was useful and I've continued to try and do that when I've been doing other projects as well so before setting up the projects I've talked to the community first I just thought that that was a good way of um, addressing that in my uh, local area. Did you get a sense when you were talking to people about what was the thing that was attracting them whether it was the sewing whether it was sewing together or whether it was the purpose which was to make these quilts? So I suppose the project, the quilt project, when I was speaking to the people, I think it was a bit of both. I think at the beginning, I think people were just interested in maybe coming together to make the quilts and hand sewing. The feedback I got from people was they liked to meet like-minded people. They enjoyed sewing, but also giving back to the community. So the quilts that we made, we we then gave back for pe to people for extra warmth with the cost of living. Um, and I think a lot of the people were saying that that's what they really enjoyed. Because the first session, I, I thought I was only going to get one or two people, but I actually got nine people on my first session. And then the second session at a different library, I got another nine people. So I was really surprised to say that it was my first project um, that I'd never done with the, the community before. But I think a lot of people said it was because, it, I think people, it's given them a purpose. You know, I think seeing everything, what's going on, we're all struggling in some way with the cost of living but I think to be able to do something rather than maybe watch or listen to what's going on 
Um, I think that's maybe what's drawn people maybe to the projects that I'm doing. I think those are really good numbers. I, I know from running community projects myself that you often don't get as many people as you hope yeah. and it can be hard yeah. to keep people. So I, I think that's absolutely great. But I, I love that sense of a combination, really, of being able to be together with other people. But also I, I noticed on your website that it's quite uncompromising. They're called cost of living quilts. You know, they you're be, you've been very upfront about the fact that there's a need for them because we're in particular times. Yeah, and I think for me, I suppose, working as a social worker, I'm I'm kind of used to having like, I suppose it's those uncomfortable conversations for me a bit that people, you know, like the next project that I'm doing, I suppose, for example, we're doing reusable sanitary pads. And, you know, I know that there's going to be conversations within the groups about, you know, sort of menopause, menstruation. And I think with me as being a social worker, I'm not, you know, I think that it's good to have those conversations because it brings it out in the open, doesn't it? You know, and it's not a taboo sort of subject that it can be for some people. But I think also what's maybe brought lots of people to the group as well is that I'm, I'm not saying that I'm the teacher or the expert. I'm saying it's about us coming together to learn from each other. So I even for myself learning, because I think I told you before, Sue, that I've never made a quilt in my whole life before I did this quilt project. <laughs> I, I watched all the YouTube videos. I knew the basics. But for me, it was always about bringing people together that had these skills so we could learn from each other. And it was open to beginner sewers, to experience and in between. It, it was nice to see people grow organically on their own. So the first week, this one lady wasn't sure what to do. So I went through what we were doing. The second week she came, she brought some ribbons and she says, I think I'm going to do some weaving this week. So it was giving people opportunities to, you know, I suppose, grow themselves you know, and, and experiment and things like that. And for me, it's about helping people to, I suppose, I value their own sort of strengths, you know. And, and when people say that about making mistakes, I try and say, well, actually, it's part of the journey. It's, you know, I'll maybe incorporate that mistake and maybe it was meant to be, you know. And I think it's about trying to encourage people that it doesn't matter if we make mistakes or we don't have to be perfect and ours doesn't your square doesn't have to look the same as the other person's um because we're all unique I think it's a hard lesson to learn actually because we're surrounded by different messages to that sometimes in education but maybe also through how we should look or peer pressure or all kinds of things which sort of bend more towards there being perfect solutions and there being right ways to do things. So I think it is quite countercultural actually to have a space where mistakes are welcome. Yeah, exactly. Where everyone is an expert in something. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I try and I suppose draw on people's strengths when we're in the group. If I know that someone is able to do something, I might ask them if they want to help someone who's new, because eventually I'd like them to be peer led so that they don't need me there. And maybe I just support the volunteers, but this group can be led um, by the, the group on its own. Yes, that's a really lovely idea. How many groups do, did you run for the Cost of Living Quilt project? Um, I did so five altogether. So wow. Friday, yeah. So so I worked Monday to Wednesday in my day to day job. Thursday and Friday my days off. So Thursday I left free. 
to do my housework and um, any meetings for me to mend. Uh, not much housework got done. <laughs> not during the day anyway, I did on the evenings and things. And then Friday, um, I did it at the one of one of the libraries, Batley. So alternate Friday afternoons, I did it at Housing Association and then Murfield Library. Saturday mornings, Hetmerdwight Library, and then Sunday afternoons, Ravenstock. So seven days a week, really, I suppose, I were doing it from January till February. But the Ravenstock one, which was on the Sunday, there was a lot of children that came to that session. So it was really nice. They didn't necessarily make the quilts because I think that was a lot harder. And having, at one point, I think one my first session I had 14 children, not all at once, but different times. And some of them was really young and I thought, me on my own with needles and um, five-year-olds and eight-year-olds was a bit tricky but what I did was I think because of my nursery nurse skills from my previous job when I went next time I adapted it so I, I had this big sheet that I was taking to the information sessions at the very beginning and I just took different activities for the children to do so we had like I got some fabric pens so that they could decorate some material and then they could either sew it on or if they wanted, I used to pin it on to the sheet where they wanted it. And then I would sew it on later or another um, you know, adult would sew it on. So I tried to adapt the different activities, but they can see their work in an exhibition with other quilts. They're called Woven in Kirklees, which I think some of the children um, probably has never maybe even been to a, an exhibition. So, so that's going to be really nice. So. That's fantastic. It's nice to have the ones that have gone out to people who need them, but also still to be able to show one because that must yeah. pass the idea on to other people as well. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I said at the very beginning, I didn't want one of the quilts from the, the Cost of Living project to go to the, the exhibition because for me, it's about giving it back. And I think if it was to sit in an exhibition, I suppose it's not helping the people that were doing it for. And also, I don't know which one I'd choose because they're all, they were all really good. But this way, I think the people that have been involved with the quilt project managed to sew something onto the big sheet. So at least it's something for them to be able to go and see as well and say, look, this is what I was part of. And I think hopefully later in the year, we'll come together um, to keep making the quilts. So, yeah, that all depends on if I can get funding and things like that to continue the project. But hopefully, fingers crossed, we will. Yeah. And how did you think of the reusable sanitary pads project? The idea of making the reusable pads came from watching a video that I saw from the Guardian newspaper about cost of living. So there was a lady that had opened a women's refuge and she was sort of talking about that a lot of the ladies were shoplifting because they couldn't afford the products because of the cost of living. They had like a food bank to try and reduce this. But she also mentioned that a lot of the ladies, when it was their time of month, they were sacrificing not buying products so that they could pay for food for the children. And as a result, they was using um, old socks or old rags for products when it was their time of month. So I've made products before for myself, reusable pads, so I know how to make them and I know the materials that are needed. So I thought that this would be a good idea for a future project. So I approached the library and they've said they thought it was a really good idea and would be happy for me to do it again. And I've already approached food banks about possibly donating them to them. All of the food banks I've, I've asked have said, yes, they would love to be involved. So, yeah. That's a really good way to get it to people, isn't it? To 
get it through food banks. Do you need to send people some information too about using them and washing them and so on? Because I imagine some people are really unfamiliar with having a cloth one. Yeah, I think we're going to put instructions with them because a lot of people, even like the volunteers that I was explaining to them about it, were saying, I think for a lot of people, it's, you know, that unknown, isn't it, about using the reusable pads and things. And I suppose like the good thing is that I've used them so I can explain how it, you know, and trying to normalise it that actually this is normal, you know, and, and it's just, I suppose, like the same blood that when you cut your finger, it's the same, you know, yes. so it's things like that. And, but yeah, we will put instructions with them and um, yeah, all the things like that. So. Yeah. I think it's so interesting how many different things the project is doing because it's going to be useful and it's going to bring people together to sew, yeah. but it is also highlighting both, as you say, the normality, the regularity, people are always surrounded by people who are menstruating. Yeah. It's just part yeah. of life. Yeah. But also, I think just that piece of information that people cannot afford mm. to go and buy a sort of manufactured sanitary yeah. goods is yeah. it's really important for us to remember what the realities are of the cost of living crisis and the yeah. generally austerity having been a thing for a long time now yeah I think it's about showing people that actually these are the sort of materials that you can use and most of the materials that you have that you've got in your own house you can use them to make your own products and how cheap it can be you know some people might just want to buy them you know the reusable pads but they're not cheap and I think for some people that's cutting out a lot of people and um, so for me I want to make it you know, the, the project's about that showing people that actually, you know, you can make these in your own home at a, a reasonable cost, you know, without having to buy the products, you know, that maybe big companies are selling. But there's a need for both, you know, and I think, you know, it, there's always going to be that need, isn't there, that some people want to buy them. They're not so, you know, they're not interested in the sewing. But I think if people can sew and would like to learn, it's showing them actually, you know, if I can do it, you can too. Yeah, it's interesting. It makes me think about when uh, Chuck and I started working on this project, which is nearly four years ago now. We we had a kind of subtitle, which was repair as an act of resistance. Okay. And I think that's because we, we started very much thinking about practical repair of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And the resistance of manufacturers for you to repair things actually yeah. it, it can yeah. be very difficult to repair things it's got more difficult to get parts for example and our colleague Mo Suma who runs a repair cafe says he needs a magnifying glass now and much smaller tools to do the work that he does yeah so we were just thinking how much it costs the sort of manufacturing world if you opt out by making your own mm. or repairing your own because yeah. the reality is if you know how to make your own you don't need to buy them if you yeah. know how to mend your bike you don't go and buy a new one just because yours is not looking great yeah, yeah. and so actually it is really quite a serious challenge to a world which has become very dependent on us buying things and I think we're made to feel very responsible if we're not out there spending and keeping everything together well actually that that shouldn't be a responsibility I don't think I think we should buy what we what we need 
yeah yeah and I think for me it fits in with I suppose me as a social worker but also I suppose my beliefs in about empowering people and upskilling people and for me for me to mend it is very much about the sharing and the learning and upskilling people so that then they have the tools for future so it's like for the repairing obviously you know it's people can come and learn and then hopefully something goes in the future they've got the skills then to be able to do it themselves they don't have to then come to the they're welcome to come to the group every month but if for example they can't or um, you know they don't feel that they need to anymore at least they've got those skills for future then haven't they yes that's right I mean do you see any other links between your current work as a social worker and the meet and mend work yeah I think for me I think it's helped with the networking and engaging with like different people communities and also like professionals I think when you're a social worker you can't stop being a social worker even when you're not at work um, and I mean that in a in obviously a nice way but if someone like comes to me with a problem or a, you know a situation that they're finding a bit tricky in one of their projects or anything like that my role within like Meet to Men now is to very much find out what other charities are out there and other voluntary sectors so then I can signpost people. So I might not be able to help them in that situation, but I can say, look, I can find out for you or this charity will be able to help you. So I think for me, yeah, there's definitely some, well, there is some overlap. It's the, um, you know, communications sort of side, but also the engagement and that awareness of, promoting other services and and giving them the the information the knowledge to help themselves I suppose in my job you know it's about making people independent rather than dependent on on things the the, the people that have like been you know coming to the groups it's a mixture of different backgrounds people some people work some people are retired some people don't work because maybe they are, they are able to at this point, uh, whether that's sort of mental health needs or other, you know, health needs. So I'm getting the people that come to the group is a mixture of people, really. And that's what I like. Or that's what I want. That's great, though. It's in, it's fascinating, the whole network around the project of yeah. all these connections and conversations. Yeah, it's really great. I just wanted to ask you, we're nearly coming to the end of our time now, but I wanted to ask you if you think there's something particular about people when they're working with their hands. I think when people have been like sewing in the groups, I think people have felt... I don't know, I've sort of witnessed or observed people just opening up and it's that safe space for people to open up when they want to. And I think when they're busy with the hands, it's not that same eye-to-eye contact because they're looking down. So I think there's not that same pressure when people are sat in a, in a group. So we have covered lots of different topics and, um, yeah, it's really nice. Mm, that's great. Okay, so I'm coming with the stinger of a question now. <laughs> Can everything be mended? Um, well, I had a careful think about this, Sue. <laughs> um, and it's not, not an easy question. But I think for me, I suppose, I don't think everything can be mended. But I think it's about providing the tools for people. For me, it's about empowering those individuals to be using skills that maybe they haven't used before um, and learning how to repair and mend things. So then if they are in a tricky situation or to do with relationships or just mending clothes, that they have the necessary skills, hopefully, that they've obtained from the group. So I suppose the projects 
a safe environment for people to make connections and talk with each other about how they feel that they could work through um, a situation that might need to be amended. So I suppose it might not be able to be totally amended, but at least if we can give people the tools and skills that they need, it might help them get through either that situation or temporarily mend some clothing. That's great. I think that's a lovely answer. I really like that. Chuck and I went online once to a a talk by the poet Lem Sisse and there were questions at the end and I I, I asked him, can everything be mended? Mm-hmm. And he's somebody who grew up in care and there was a lot of mending needing to be done after his experience. And he said, no, but you you must always try. And yeah, it's yeah. the trying that is actually the important thing, not whether you reach the conclusion or not, which I thought was really yeah, interesting. And it rings a bell for me with you saying just you need to have the tools because if, yeah. I guess if you don't have them, you couldn't even think about it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you so much, Joe. It's lovely to have a longer chat with you and really, really enjoyed it and hearing more about the group. Yeah, thank you. No, and um, you've made me feel really easy. It's been really lovely. <laughs> <laughs> Good. That's lovely. Thank you so much, Joe. See you later. Thanks so much for listening to the Breaks and Joins podcast. And I hope you'll enjoy listening to the other podcasts too. If you want more information about the project, you can find us on www.sumeo.co.uk and also on our Instagram page, breaks underscore and underscore joins. We'd love to hear from you. A big shout out to our funders, Arts Council England, Necessity and the Being Human Festival. And finally, I'd like to thank my wonderful editor, Chuck Blue Lowry, and Bob Carper, who wrote the music for the podcasts. Thanks, and hope to see you soon.